My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode three. This week, my guest is an artist and virtual reality designer, Fabrice Bourouli. So if you're remotely curious about the brave new world of virtual reality and all the creative possibilities it could open up for us, or if you're like me, a bit of an old-fashioned romantic, wondering, but what about the artist? in this new world of artificial intelligence and technology and virtual reality. Have a listen to Fabrice, because he has a lot of experience of both sides of this coin and a lot of wisdom to share. Once again, thank you so much for all the emails and comments and tweets and reviews this week. You know, it's been a lonely road. Creating the podcast in my lonely Garrett home office And it's so nice now that the podcast's out there in the world to see how it's landing for you. And it's it's really great to hear that you're enjoying it and finding it useful. And rest assured, there's plenty more to come. Some of you have asked about social media. So if you want to say hi, Twitter is my favorite social network. You can find me there at Mark McGuinness. That's Mark with a K, M-C-G-U-I. Double N E double S. I also have a Facebook page which is facebook.com slash lateral action, and that's lateral as in sideways. So, without further ado, let's get started. Last week, we looked at the pros and cons of the 21st century and saw that they're a two-edged sword. The things that are terrible about 21st century life are the mirror image of things that are great about it. So the wonderful digital devices that bring us inspiration and connections are also a positive menace when it comes to getting creative work done. The changes in the economy bring new opportunities for enterprising creators, but they also create job insecurity and anxiety for anyone who wants a more settled way of life. So how can we as creatives make the most of the new opportunities of this century while minimising the downside? I suggest we take inspiration from the old wedding rhyme. Something old, something new. Starting with the old, some aspects of creativity never change. The principles of storytelling, of human psychology of balance and composition in a visual field, or the harmonic scales in music. Whatever your creative discipline, there are fundamental principles. There are craft skills. There's an evolving tradition of great work. So, whatever your line of work, you can get better at it by learning these fundamentals and working at them. Some aspects of these traditional skills are being made easier by new technology. I'm a writer, so if I'd lived a hundred years ago, I'd be writing out my books and poems longhand. Thirty years ago, 
I'd have been using a typewriter, having to type the whole thing out again every time I wrote a new draft. Now I can type and edit on the screen, and print a draft out to review it. It's much easier to get the sense of the shape of a poem when it's laid out in pristine print than in my notebook, in my scruffy handwriting, with bits crossed out and written over. When I'm writing prose, I mostly use speech recognition, which means I can walk around my office talking to the computer and watching the words appear on the screen as if by magic. If you're a musician, you can record your music in high quality at home and play it back, add effects and tweak it until you're satisfied. You don't have to go back very far to a time when this kind of technology was very expensive and reserved for genuine rock stars. Not much further back into history, and the technology didn't exist at all. So the creative possibilities for musicians were a lot more limited. So, new technology can help us perfect ancient skills. But it also means we have to learn whole new skill sets our ancestors never had to worry about. So, not only can I write more easily with my computer, when I'm finished I can upload it to the internet and publish it on my blog, or as an e-book, or as a printed book, to readers all over the world. I can record this podcast and you can listen to it just about anywhere on the planet. The same goes for you. Whatever your line of work, you can share it or sell it to people all over the world. Which is a wonderful thing, but it means we have to learn how to create and maintain websites, how to format media files for different platforms, how to connect with people on social media, how to build a mailing list, how to write sales copy, how to take credit card payments, how to fill out international tax forms, how to protect your copyright, how to avoid infringing someone else's copyright, and so on. Now, if you have the money, you might want to hire people to do these things for you, but then you have to learn how to find the right people, negotiate fees, and manage them so that you get the results you want. Before you know it, you could find yourself running a mini creative agency with staff all over the world, and wondering when you'll find the time to get back to the creative work you set out to do in the first place. As you attempt to balance the old things and the new things, you'll have to watch out for two big pitfalls. Number one, plowing your lonely furrow. Doing deep work, creating amazing things, but cut off from the world. You're not connected and you're not getting your work out there. In the second scenario, you throw yourself enthusiastically into the new world, but you end up spending all your time on shiny new objects, learning the latest tools, trying out the trendiest new social media sites, frittering away your energies on email and other trivia. Meanwhile, you're neglecting your craft and avoiding the deep thinking that leads to truly great work. So, however busy you may feel, you don't have a lot to show for it. To avoid both of these pitfalls, I suggest you set yourself the modest ambition of becoming the most traditional and the most cutting-edge person in your field. Start with your craft skills. As well as practicing them, do a deep dive on the history of your field. Study the old masters, learn the old techniques no one bothers with anymore. At the same time, be open to new ideas, new skills and new ways of doing things. Hang out with people in different fields, 
take courses in technical or professional skills that will help you achieve your ambitions and reap the rewards. In my case, I often write poems that include modern or futuristic subject matter, but the verse form is likely to be from the Middle Ages or the Renaissance. These days, I'm in a minority of poets who use so many of these traditional forms, but at the same time, I don't know many poets who are as comfortable as I am using digital technology and online tools. As a coach, I originally trained as a psychotherapist. I spent 17 years practicing therapy. So I'm comfortable helping my clients with the psychological challenges of succeeding in a creative field. But I also use online marketing to find my clients. And I do most of my coaching via webcam so I can work with a client even if they're on the other side of the planet to me. Something old, something new. But how can you manage both sides simultaneously? A lot of it comes down to time management, which is really role management in disguise. You can't be a creator and a distributor at the same time, or a marketer and a manager, or a copywriter and an accountant. So it pays to allocate different times to different roles. On a daily basis, you might have dedicated creative time followed by business time. On a weekly basis, you might have a marketing meeting with your team or with yourself, or a particular time you catch up on your accounts and track the flow of money. It's worth thinking in bigger cycles. For example, you might dedicate a week to learning a new software application before you start creating with it, or two months to create a messy first draft of your screenplay, then spend concentrated time on the business side of things. Recording this podcast was a pretty steep learning curve for me. I had to buy a lot of recording equipment and software and learn how to use it before I could even start recording. But now I have the kit and I have these skills, I can use them for all kinds of recording projects in future. Now, to manage these cycles successfully, you need to develop another skill, which is, instead of getting sucked in and distracted by the demands of the moment, to step back and look at the big picture of your career and identify all the different roles you need to play to succeed. Then find a place for each role in your day, your week, and your longer term. Okay, that's all for this week. Having spent two weeks focusing on the times we're living in and how to deal with them, next week we're going to explore the frontiers of space. If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth programme, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one 
to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. My guest today is a creator who really embodies the idea of combining the best of the old and the most exciting of the new in his work. His name is Fabrice Bourrelli, or Bourrelli, is closer to his own pronunciation. He's an artist who grew up in the south of France, close to some of the oldest and most spectacular artwork in the world, the Stone Age cave paintings at Peshmel. He's also a trained architect, a 3D visualizer, and a virtual reality designer who has created virtual worlds for clients including Google, IDEO, Bentley Motors, Epic Games, Thomas Heatherwick, Anish Kapoor, and Philippe Stark. Thomas Heatherwick describes Fabrice as a craftsman of dreams and apparitions. He's a true artist who applies his deep knowledge and craft skills using cutting-edge technology. The multifaceted nature of Fabrice's work means he's equally at home creating a beautiful fine art life drawing in charcoal, visualising a spectacular new architectural development as a photorealistic video, immersing users in a virtual environment via the Oculus Rift, or finding new ways for us to study or go shopping in the internet of the future. You can see examples of Fabrice's work in the artworks and videos on his website, fabricebourrelli.com, which is F-A-B-R-I-C-B-O-U-R-R-E-L-L-Y.com, and on his YouTube channel of the same name. Fabrice was a coaching client of mine for about 18 months. In that time, I was taken on an amazing tour of his imagination and I realised he had some unusual and important things to say about creativity, technology and virtual reality that I really wanted to share with you on the podcast. This is a very wide-ranging interview, from the cave painters of ancient Europe to illegal raves in 90s Paris to Minecraft and the mind-blowing potential of virtual reality to transform our future. There's so much in it, I've listened to the recording three times and noticed new things each time. So, strap yourself in and prepare for a voyage of creative discovery with Fabrice Bourrelli. Fabrice, you grew up in the south of France. And just down the road from one of my all-time favourite works of art, which is the, the prehistoric cave art in the Peshmerl Caves. So when I was about maybe 11 or 12, I got to go down into the darkness, into the caves, to see these incredible paintings by Neolithic people 
deep under the earth. And it's an experience I've never forgotten. And that was just down the road for you growing up. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, were you aware of it? And if so, what kind of impression did it make on you? What kind of presence was it in your life? Yeah, um, well, it, these these caves were very much part of um, of the sort of the whole life of living in the southwest of France. Um, growing up as a child, uh, the 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 deep past was was all around us, and um, you know there were were where it was very common to find fossils in the in the fields of of sort of shells, and you can see them in the in the stones of houses and um, we would just play with this stuff. You know, it was just, it was just part of growing up. It was part of our, our lives. And, and these caves were very important for me because I mean, they were, they were, they're sort of world heritage site or something like that. And they, um, so we went all the time. I, I knew it, I knew them so well. I always claimed I could have been a guide, but see the, um, <laughs> these, you know, we, we went um, sort of all all the time. I knew they were there. I um, uh, uh, the strange thing is that um, the I mean, I'll just tell a little bit what they are because they they are um, effectively they're just sort of large holes in the ground that people used to to live in. And um, uh, what what happened is that they went deep into the caves and. When, um, because they had these sort of candles with them, I think the, the flame would dance along the walls and they would see these shadows. And obviously we don't know for sure, but one interpretation is that they could sort of see these shapes. And, uh, and obviously some people uh, got inspired and, and sort of picked up a bit of charcoal on the floor and, and, um, and drew um, what they saw, what they what they knew, which were those um, uh, animals, and some people say they were religious. But the thing is that these people were exactly as the same people as we are. There were uh, Homo sapiens, I think that's yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. And they, we haven't really evolved. Um, we haven't changed at all. They were they had the same brain, same body. And, um, but this was, well, these particular caves were 20, the drawings on the caves are 25,000 years old. I mean, they're so old that the rock has actually started growing on top of the drawings. So, so <laughs> really? they're, they're, they're actually ingrained inside the, the, inside wow. the rock. And so for me as a kid, you know, the, these things were just there and, and a lot of things like seeped into the, in the past, you know, we had these medieval villages that are that have been preserved exactly as as they were. Um, a lot of a lot of um, very old machinery, or sort of, you know, when I was a kid, the farmers still had the horses that they was used to plow the fields with. Um, so this was very much part of my life, and I think as a kid, you just you don't really think about things; you just live them. But the the drawings on the caves were. Um, made a significant impact on me, really, when I went back after uh, I hadn't been there for uh, about 15 years. And I went back and um, uh, just seeing these drawings as a, as a grown up and uh, as, as I had then, since then started to uh, learn to draw and draw in charcoal and draw the, the human figure. 
um, represent the things I see, um, to, to, to see that um, people 25,000 years ago and beyond were using the same, <laughs> the same bit of burnt wood that you can just pick up off the floor and um, yeah. draw a line on the wall which is exactly what I'd been trying to do. I, I felt an incredible um, sensation of, of connection with with uh, the distant past, uh, effectively, and and that's that's something that still resounds with me um, today. I have to say, it's it's um, um, it, it it kind of makes me feel that there's some things that just don't change that's i don't know if it's a struggle it's it's something we're trying to do uh but we have this this um impulse of just picking up a tool and 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 try to represent reality effectively you know what what we see through our eyes onto whatever <laughs> it is that will support the right. the, the material and these paintings, they're, they're pretty well the earliest known art, aren't they? I think there was, there was you know, sculpture in mammoth tusks and so on as well. Right, but yes. It's, you know, right, I just found it incredibly moving that right from the beginning, or that sense of connection, that these were people like us. I mean, for me, it was one of the, the things I'll never forget from the cave is there was one, there's a handprint at some yes. point where somebody has put their hand on the wall and presumably they've used a tube of paint to kind of like it look like an airbrush effect that they've blown the paint over their hand and taken the hand away so there's this person's hand i mean yeah. not that you're allowed to do it but you could put your hand up and it would match like you say it's the same it's the same hand yeah. the same hand the same species all, all that time ago and here we are well there's you and your studio still using the same implements in terms of charcoal Yes, exactly. The, that particular hand, I think they used it. It was a red uh, sort of um, kind of terac terracotta color, color yeah. that they would um, put in their mouth and they would just blow over. So effectively, yes, you, you can put your hand over and it just it matches. It's the same hand. There's also one of a, a, a there's a there's a foot of a boy with um, with a paw of a dog next to him. Yeah. And, and so they figured that that was um, a sort of a theory of, you know, the, the friendship between man and, and dogs. And, and on top of that, the ceiling's quite low and they um, sort of played with their fingers on the sort of wet clay of the ceilings. And you could just see that these traces of, of, um, of their fingers along the, along the ceiling. I and mean, obviously now that's become rock and it's, it's hard, but it, wow. it's, it's, you get these things. So the, the very strange thing when you visit the caves is that the, they explain how, um, the, the, the form of the land is, it hasn't changed either. So the, the, the formations is the rivers are, are the same, but the vegetation has completely changed. And obviously there were mammoths, there were lions and tigers, uh, because you can see them on the walls and that's what they were driving. So there's some things have completely changed. Um, you know, the, the trees and the, the vegetation that are totally uh, totally different species, but the land and man are 
are there or haven't changed. Oh, yeah. We are the things that endure when all the tigers and lions have gone. Well, I guess. The up, south up, of France. Up until now. <laughs> all right. So, I mean, you, I'm really interested in this because, you, you know, your artistic career began right back in the distant past. And yet you ended up moving very far right to the cutting edge of technology. I mean, I gather you were, back in the 90s, you were one of the very first VJs at some of the rave parties in Paris. Can you talk about that? Right. Well, yes, I guess the, um, again, when I was a child, you know, computers um, appeared and my parents, I think, just thought, oh, let's get the kids one <laughs> where these these computers with tapes. So we had to play the tape and load the program or load the game and um, it would take a few minutes and then you could sort of start typing and start playing. And then uh, there was computers that had no hard drives, no memory, uh, a tiny little green screen where you could just uh, do text on. And so I think most of the time we would just sort of take the computers apart and try to see what was inside them. But um, it, it, when I was a student in Paris, this was, I mean, when I studied architecture, uh, the, 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 at the beginning, the computers started to come, but, you know, they were s still so, so, so slow. It would take all night, I think it would take six hours to do a sort of simple hidden line perspective drawing. So it was just literally black lines. Uh, so... I'd, I'd started using them, but when I was in Paris, they they did begin to have hard drives, and it was just the beginning. I remember opening my first CompuServe account, where there was my first email address, and um, so it was very, really, the beginning of the computer era, and it was also the beginning of of um, synthesizers and um so the, the techno music and house music um sort of began appearing and the whole sort of techno and rave movement and um uh, was was just happening at, happening at a time and so uh, i completely fell into it for me techno music had this um still has actually this very mysterious uh thing that it's um it's it's a piece of electronic really that's completely a transistor a resistor that um when tweaked um and effectively at the time the computers were a lot of instruments were still analog so they had buttons that you could sort of turn uh those were machines that would create sounds that would create deep, deep, deep emotions in in us. Well, especially with the help of of some substance substances that some people took. So it was very, um, it, it you know, it was a very um, how can I say? Um, again, it was a, there was a lot of emotions, a lot of connection between people at these events. Um, you know, and and it was there was a lot of discovery. It was all very very new. So um, to me, it was fascinating that the, the these sounds that that were uh, coming uh, out of of these machines. And I think they were 
they were really talking to us. So um, I started um, organizing events and um, some illegal ones, which was great fun, <laughs> very exciting, sort of 3,000 people kind of <laughs> in some dark warehouse dancing all night, uh, it's just wait, waiting for the police to turn up. But um, the uh, going back to, to, to the computers and sort of what, what I was interested in is was to, um, to sort of create um, images uh, because I was beginning to get into 3D uh, at the time, and uh, I was playing with a program called Deluxe Paint 2, which was um, which was basically a, a painting program. It was the, the very the very beginning of Photoshop, and with that program, you could um, it was it was it only worked on 256 colors. Uh, you could load about 12 drawings, I think. And so what happened is that you could play, you could draw something and create some gradients. And when you could, would cycle through those gradients, um, it gave you the illusion of something 3D. So, um, so effectively, that's what I was doing for far too much time during my studies. And, um, and so I met some programmers that um, kind of um, liked the drawings I was doing and they wanted to um, um, they wanted to do something with 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 that and with me. So we, we created this software that would um, use these drawings which were um, very light so they would fit in the memory of the computer because the, the computer wasn't very fast so it was um, good to to use very sort of um, uh, light um, lightweight drawings or files like that and we would uh, cycle through these colors create these sort of 3d shapes and with the program we created we were able to synchronize that to um, to the music so it was sort of taking trying to take that new dimension of um, of those incredible sounds that were coming out of these incredible sound systems and um, and trying to express them visually and uh, with with the fact that we could um, synchronize it to the rhythm of the music then we have these sort of shapes dancing and I think a lot of VJing um, work, I mean, along with the sort of the whole art development, they, they, uh, a lot of VJing are about uh, creating something completely different to the music, you know, sort of videos and things like that. But we wanted to just try and stick to the music as much as possible and just basically create, uh, uh, express sounds. So that's what it was about. And um, it's a sort of took off we we did a lot of events in paris and a lot of raves and public raves and um and um unfortunately here in london the movement died out uh, due to some laws that were passed but i think the the vjing world is is still going strong and um and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of software out there now but um um it's it's um yeah it was it was still using using those using the tools again to express something sort of going back to the caveman we're still we're still doing the same thing <laughs> okay so continuing your trajectory and the you know following on from the vjing you i understand that you went on to collaborate with some 
prominent architects and fashion designers using the 3D design that you were developing? I mean, how did that work? Yeah, I mean, the, the, um, so again, I just sort of followed <laughs> whatever computers could do, I would just sort of uh, <laughs> do that. So, Following on the the evolution of uh, of computer, um, the uh, effectively at, at the VJ in time, I was it was two D, and um, when as soon as I sort of graduated uh, architecture in about ninety six, um, computers started to be able to do three D. So. It was still very slow. It always still slow, but um, the it, being an architect, being trained trained and and qualified as an architect, my interest was really space. And the again, there was a deep, deep, deep fascination in um, representing space in. Um, in the virtual world, effectively, already there was a, a novel that I read that had a very strong influence on me called Snow Crash by uh, Neil Stevenson. And I think there was a, another one called Neuromancer. But these were these science fiction books, I think, sparked the imagination of a whole generation because um, the Internet was beginning to um, to uh, to happen. And. Uh, I think these these um, these science fiction writers just put two and two together and thought, "Ooh, we've got 3D, we've got internet. Um, how's that gonna, you know, how's that gonna gonna happen?" When um, so they created these amazing stories of of effectively um, people living a life onto uh, a inner virtual world called the metaverse in in the in for Neil Stevenson and uh, well little do you know <laughs> the internet I mean how much time do people <laughs> spend on the internet today <laughs> so um, uh, so at the time it was it, yeah I, it, it was really fascinating for me and but the the, um, the fact was that I could see that 3D um, was a new tool that was becoming available to us. And uh, when you look back at the history of design, new tools have influenced form um, consistently. Sort of, you know, at the beginning, it was just stones and there were wood, and uh, that effectively that created uh, the language of uh, classical architecture, uh, some argue. And, um, and then we had a industrialization uh, where we could start building things out of steel and at the same time or even before that we had the renaissance where people started to draw architecture before they would build it so that um, created uh, different different types of, of buildings maybe uh, more expressive uh, with uh, sort of Michelangelo started to break things up and uh, to become a bit of a revolutionary. As the some argue, is the beginning of modernism, and and then we had the industrial revolution where um, we started uh, drawing with a set square and the drawing board and um, 
and then we had we had computers so and then buildings started going up and and uh, and then 3D where buildings began uh well then it wasn't really happening but you know now you can re- when you look back you can really see Zaha Hadid and Thomas Heatherwick and uh, Frank Gehry and architects like that the, the the form of architecture with um with the new tools have have completely completely changed so i was really interested to explore uh to explore that and um so i studied um this as for, for my diploma and i gained quite a lot of um of experience using the tool of of 3d uh, for for to to design to use to use in architecture and especially to sort of to push to to explore the things you can do with it uh the 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 fascinating thing for me was that um you can create space um without having to necessarily go through the process of abstraction uh so just to explain that a little bit when i refer back to my medieval village <laughs> called Saint-Cyr-la-Popie back in the um yeah. in the south of france that village for me is charming uh you know it's it's got um oh, it's delightful yeah do you do, do you know it it's, i do yeah it's just it's, it's got just... quirky little corners everywhere it's got you know the materials are delightful there's no there's um there's a sort of the absence of ego i guess because the castle has disappeared there's a church on at the top and so that's a lot about ego but the rest of the village is very um homogeneous and uh, all the roofs are the same material so it's it's um it's it's for me it's a reference in architecture but it was architecture without architects and it was created obviously without drawings without um uh, without plans without thinking too much i was i think it was just about function somebody needed a house or a barn there and they just put it there and uh it was about craft some people knew how to build it and they weren't necessarily trying to innovate they would just um do what they knew how to do and the result is really beautiful so i this this is another subject but the 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 sometimes i wonder whether we're progressing and we're creating better more beautiful things as uh, we're becoming um, more and more evolved or uh, whether at some point we kind of <laughs> missed something and um... this this is a really important point I mean I mean I remember when I studied creativity theories for my masters one of the things that amazed me was to discover that there was no architect of cathedrals like Chartres the, right. the, in those days the architect and the master mason were the same person you know the same person who was designing in inverted commas was actually the builder and the only designs were practical drawings used on site usually fully life-sized just to help them get a sense of how you know how wide this window was going to be or that arch or yeah or so on and so the i you know the idea now the division between you know the, the architect and the builder or even the artist and the craftsman it was just they didn't have it mm. and as you said you know this is another point I want to pull out, you said that the the tool has always influenced the design. Because it'd be very easy to look at your work now, particularly but we'll talk about virtual reality in a moment, and say, gosh, he's so far out in the future. But actually 
I know from talking to you about this a lot, that you see yourself as part of this tradition, that people have always used the tools that were of hand and they've always had an influence on what they were able to create. Right, yes. I think it's very easy to get obsessed with technology and um, to just get drawn into what technology can do. Uh, it's, it's, well, it's, it's, uh, there's something very attractive. It's, um, you know, satisfies us of sort of needs for curiosity and, and, oh, isn't it amazing what we can do? But it's when I think then when that happens, we can lose uh, sight of, well, of, of what we're talking about, of the past, of, of some of the things. So, for example, yeah, the, I think architect means master builder, the, the origin of the word. And oh, really? um, was... so effectively, somebody needed some someone yeah. to coordinate the whole thing. Right, right. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you're God. (laughs) (laughs) I think that those cathedrals and also they were built over several hundred years. So that's why, you know, a lot of them have the, have different towers on the front, but, and fashions changed, but it was very much about craft. Uh, Yes. So about what people knew how to do. Um, And, and I think when, when we're focused on technology and focused on technology, um, uh, we, it's, it, it's, I think it's quite easy to forget, uh, craft and, um, to just be fascinated by, by, uh, by technology. Um, and, and there's a place for that. But, uh, when, when I look at 3d, um, it's for me, it's, I guess it's, it really, um, satisfies this this purpose <laughs> that I had. I had this. I remember still now when I was about fifteen. I looked at. In fact, it was my parents were building a, uh, a, a their little office um, in the field next door to the, the house, and they hired an architect. And the architect did a building. And I, I remember thinking, I, I want to do architecture because I want to do not that. because it was it was trying to do it was trying to be modern and it just had deep flaws i mean i can't blame the architect maybe my parents were being stingy and he didn't have the budget (laughs) but to me you know it was it's arguably all all we need is possibly a barn you know, I think when people move to the countryside, all they want is a converted barn. And uh-huh. so maybe you don't need to to do something too fancy or to try too hard. Um, all we need is just four walls and a roof, you know. And um, so, and, and that could be really charming. And so when I... When I started to see 3D, I thought, oh, we've got something really interesting here where we can... And this is this is just a question, really. We can we go back to 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 the Middle Ages, create and and sort of stand there at eye level, look at something, and go, I want to do it like this, and sort of I want to do it this big, and I'm kind of moving my arms here. You can't see me, but you yeah. know, and we're sort of projecting in space, but from. Um, from a, a human perspective, from eye level, and 
And obviously now with 3D, you can also have the God's eye view to look at things from the top and to kind of extract and abstract facades and what we call elevations and sections and uh, plans, whichever is effectively is, is a cutout of the building in horizontal um, looking down. So we can, we can do all these things which are very practical, but with 3D, you've, we, we've got the opportunity to go, to go back and look at things at eye level. So that was just the beginning because um, when you're doing 3D on a computer, you're looking at a screen. So right. it's effectively like looking at a piece of paper. It's a flat. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a the screen is a flat thing, and uh, it's just because. Well, it's like looking looking at a drawing or a painting. It's looking at an image on a screen. Yeah. So that was just the beginning, but virtual reality was already being, the technology already existed and you could already do it. Uh, in fact, the technology of um, stereo vision is, was invented in the late 1800s to have one image per eye. So you can see in, in, um, in 3D effectively. Uh, so, so that's, that's not new, um, wow. but the, it was it was the beginning, and I saw that, and I thought, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. <laughs> I'm gonna be there. So, I I started working in 3D, and um, yes, I gained those skills, and then I came to London, and um, I started working with uh, with some really interesting people like Thomas Heatherwick. You know, right at the beginning, there were only five of them in a little tiny room, and. Mm -hmm. I had no idea who he was. <laughs> they said right. he needed some help, and was like, "Who? Who's that?" And uh, <laughs> and and so yeah, he's a fascinating, fascinating character and uh, an amazing designer. But um, he he was all. He, it was very interesting working with him because he was always trying to push, always trying to see. Uh, and he doesn't use only computers. Actually, I mean, he's renowned for. You know, during presentations, he likes to he he always tries to express things with his body. So he pulls his cheeks to <laughs> to express a form. Really? Which, yes, which <laughs> shows uh, shows you know the kind of forms he's after. But they they've got a massive workshop and they use you know they they fold all sorts of different materials and they 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 make molds and um and they they make hundreds of models for. Uh, for buildings so, so it's it's a fascinating studio to to uh, to be part of but um yeah obviously 3d because it was so flexible and it was um so quick and and you know and we were able to output a, a lot of images and so he used it as a tool which was very very interesting and uh, and i know that now uh, you know they've they've grown this sort of i think there are 200 of them now but the um, uh, they use virtual reality, uh, and he loves it. He's um, he's he's in it all the time because um, I mean we'll we'll talk about VR a little bit later, I guess. But the the, the point is that you're in it, um, as right. opposed to um, looking at it from on paper. And also, you know, from what I'm hearing, you know, you, you've got a nice quote on your website where you talk about the role of 3D and visualization and design, you say, where most 3D visualizers are still content to illustrate designs created by architects, I help architects and designers use 3D visualization 
as part of the design process itself. So maybe you could just say a little bit about what you mean by that. Well, yes, exactly. So, so that's what, um, you know, when, when I say Thomas was really in, uh, interested in, in using it um, as a tool um, because the, the, um, um, the difficulty or the, the risk that I see that um, uh, 3D is very attractive because we create beautiful, fascinating pictures. And so um, we can use it for marketing. And I guess most of it is used for marketing because uh, there's, there's a strong correlation between the architecture visualization industry and uh, advertising or um, Hollywood where 3D, mm -hmm. you know, um, films and special effects where obviously 3D is used extensively now, you know, Star Wars and so on, to to create emotions in people and uh, to to create this sort of these dreams. So if you want to sell a home, <laughs> you create this sort of image right. of a dream home and um, before it's built and it's very easy to to sell or it's i don't know if it's easy but it's easier to sell with a pretty picture so so i don't really have anything against that because that's part of what i do and uh, i get paid to do that so you know it's that's fine but what i'm really interested in is is the potential to effectively use this tool to um it's going to sound a little bit uh, pretentious but to to better our world <laughs> to make mm -hmm. a better world i'll say it because we, we've because of the the problem of when we create you know architects are effectively paid to draw plans so, uh, so that they can build a building so when you when you draw a plan, you've got a, a problem that uh, very few people can understand what it is uh, you're talking about, and um, you know even sort of on very uh, on bigger scales when you talk about urbanism and um, uh, planning and things like that, a lot of it is about numbers and um, zones and uh, zoning and things like that. So it all becomes very abstract, and I think it's a little bit of a a missed opportunity because it's very difficult to communicate um, that with people with the with the wider public effectively who um, I guess it's a little bit like politics you know they sort of get a little bit dis disengaged in the whole thing because they sort of they think oh well it's you know what what do I have to say anyway? You know, what, do, yeah. what does it matter? Nobody's going to listen to me. Um, and I think that's 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 a big problem in our cities today you know where people sort of see property as effectively a, a means of making money or, or or parking you know making money in the long term or i can we can see that in london a lot of people a lot of buildings are uh, empty because people from overseas just invest in here and um you know this got an effect on communities and and uh, and on on people's well-being and and so on so it's it's a very small thing that just the tools we use, but I think that if we use 3D to um, not only to design but also to communicate with people, uh, we've got a chance to be more engaged in the whole process of design. And so, for example, in in some of the things that we're beginning to see, you know, um, 
uh, people are really beginning to be able to use the tool themselves. Uh, so, for example, um, there's a, an architect called uh, Bark Inkel, come uh, from a firm called Big, and they're designing actually along with Thomas Heatherwick, they're doing the uh, Google headquarters at the moment in in Silicon Valley and in um, in London as well, I think. And he he's got an interesting thing about um, he says that architecture should be like Minecraft. Not that it should necessarily look like Minecraft or that architecture should be a video game, but what what he says is that we have we have now an entire generation of of children growing up who know how to use this tool. And they effectively what children do in Minecraft is they build their dreams and they inhabit it, inhabit them. So they build it and they go in them. And that is all through play. And I think that's a very, very interesting point because when when I see my children play on Minecraft, I'm like, hang on a minute. That's what I do all day. <laughs> you know, like, Give that to me. Yeah. Well, I'm like, well, you know, well, what am I going to do? Because you all, you can all do this now. And, and so I'm thinking... Right. So if if we've got an entire generation of people who can do this, you know, and this is it's almost it really is like second nature. They just pick up the keyboard and mouse and they just roam around. Uh, you know, very few of my clients can do that. You know, just as you were describing it, I was thinking, how in a minute, this reminds me of something. And I realized it, it was Minecraft. You know, I was in. Yeah. Children called me into the living room the other day and they said, Daddy, we built a house for you. And I thought, yeah, okay, right, fine. <laughs> I had a look and there was this, they'd actually built a house and it was, yeah. it was full of bookshelves. He said, we know you like books, Daddy. So we put lots of bookshelves. There you go, there. there you go. You see, <laughs> and I was like, so, what? <laughs> and they put their emotions in it. They put their hearts yeah. in it and, yeah. and it's theirs. And isn't it a little bit what's missing in our cities today that people yeah. think, that it's theirs. Yeah, so so children playing in Minecraft, uh, I think is a very good idea. And when um, when you see some of the um, flagship architecture uh, created, for example, by uh, Frank Gehry, he's very much about that as well. And he's obviously very successful as an architect. And this idea of playing, this idea of... of um, of of being engaged and with as an artist with with our body with our hands with our minds um um i think there's i think there's something there i think it's 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 how to how to get more and more people you know how to do to to get that practically happening on the on a wider scale um I th well again referring back to referring to virtual reality i think there were it's it's uh, it's happening um uh, before our eyes literally <laughs> right so uh, and and minecraft are doing their bit for the up and coming generation but also just coming back to your own career for a moment as well as exploring the cutting edge of technology you you're a very skilled trained draftsman so maybe you could say a bit about why did you learn to draw and, and what effect did that have on your practice? Right, yes, because you see, 
I've um, I've always wanted to be an artist, <laughs> and I I couldn't draw as a kid. I, my brother was really good at drawing, and um, I always admired him for that. Um, and although I studied architecture, I guess I could draw perspectives and construct them. But um, being what 3D makes you do, and if you're anybody who's in the uh, visual effects industry or in the film industry will know that very well, is that you, in order to represent something accurately, you can use the computer as much as you want but first thing you really need to do is observe the world around you. You need to, if you want to show uh, a piece of reflective metal, you really have to look at a piece of reflective metal. You really have to observe what's going on and all the different, if what's happening with the light, what's happening, how the material is behaving at different angles and what the, the little imperfections and how, what they are. And you need to separate all these things in your mind and recreate them in the computer. If you just tell the computer metal, well, it's going to look like a computery metal, and people will just spot that from you know miles away, and it's just going to look computery, and it's, and we're we're done with that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> fifteen years ago, it looked it was fine uh, because it was new and it was exciting, but now uh, it won't do. So when um, I was I was working as a 3D artist and not having had a fine art training of, of any kind, I sort of one day turned around and think, thought, oh, I'm I'm making images here, you know, effectively. And 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 actually, it was working with with Thomas Heatherwake where I realized that they were expecting me to be an artist. They were expecting me to be the artist. But I studied architecture, so. Um, I thought, oh, I want to be an artist. What do artists do? So I, I looked at <laughs> <laughs> I looked at Michelangelo. Uh, I looked at Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci actually, and and I thought, what do artists do? Artists know how to draw, and now um, I thought, great, um, I want to learn to draw. So I I typed on the internet how to draw and um, drawing the figure came up. And and also I bought a great book, which anybody who wants to learn to draw should have. It's called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Um, oh yeah, amazing book. Yes. And it, really, it's, really. It's a classic, isn't it? Millions, sold millions and millions of copies. But the the amazing thing about that book, which really did it for me, was when she makes you draw a very complicated line drawing of, of a of a rider of a knight on a horse. Uh, but she makes you draw it upside down. Wow. And uh, and I did it with my kids, and the, it's unbelievable the result uh, you get when you do that. I remember, because I had this as a teenager, and it was a similar exercise I remember. It made such an impression. She said, don't draw the shape in front of you. Draw the white space around the shape. And I drew this tree and I was just looking at all the, I was just mm. looking at all the, the white bits. I wasn't trying to draw the leaves and I just, and it was like a magic eye, you know, because by the time I'd done that, then I kind of stepped back and then the tree appeared. Exactly. And yes. I thought, wow, you know, because it was just, it was showing me a different way to look at the world. Exactly. And, mm. 
So that's that's what's really, really interesting when you start to learn to draw because I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't draw, <laughs> you know, I think what we can't draw, why can't we draw? Because, uh, you know, it's there, it's there in front of you, you can see it. So why can't we just draw exactly what we see? And, and so that's, that was the beginning of a very long journey that I'm still on <laughs> that effectively what, what something happens between your eyes and your hand and what happens between your eyes and your hand and you know about this more than most is the brain yeah. and and um and that damn brain of ours is is just distorting everything and is 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 analyzing i mean i shouldn't I shouldn't put the brain down. <laughs> well, it has its uses. Let, it let's not diss it completely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we, we've touched several times on virtual reality in this conversation. So maybe now's the time to, to bring it front and cent center. And maybe you could start by just explaining what is virtual reality and why are you so interested in it? Right, yes. So virtual reality is... What is virtual reality? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, well, virtual means, I, I think it's it, in, in physics, the word virtual is means when you look in the mirror. So the, the, the virtual, uh, if you, when you look in the mirror, the person you see is the virtual you. So it's the image on the other side. So that's quite interesting. Um, so virtual reality would be the reality on the other side. Right. Um, so, so in that case, you know, virtual reality is effectively, you know, your, your Facebook profile is, can that be called virtual reality? I guess it would, you know, the, the, it's, um, it is a reality, but it doesn't, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist anywhere in this real inverted commas world. It's mm -hmm. only on the other side. It's in your phone. So it's on the other side of the screen. Um, so that's what I like to, to think of virtual reality as, um, the, all, all this, um, effectively order, um, that is created, um, beyond the screen. And, and, um, so what, what I'm particularly interested in is the form that, that, that those, those things would take because currently they're just a piece of paper. Um, it's like reading the newspaper your Facebook profile is, is, um, is laid out like a newspaper or a magazine. So I've, I've always been fascinated by, um, by, by the forms that things would take in 3d because they are, um, void of any constraints that we find in the real world, like gravity, um, and and the, the the laws of physics 
uh, effectively. Um, so in 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 three D, you could create forms which just exist um, in themselves. So um, the the I. I've been waiting for this for 20 years now, I have to say, <laughs> always right. say. But what, what's happened is, is the, um, the, there's a combination of, of different technologies. Uh, one, which is the power of computers um, in, in 3D. So that's mostly driven by video games. Uh, the, the, the power uh, in... Um, 3d cars which is effectively um, in the computer you've got the main unit which is the cpu which does all the calculation and then um, they've created a sort of a, another set of cpus which are um, specialized in 3d and um, things like lighting and so on so that's on a separate card that you can buy and uh, the interesting thing is that the cpu today has eight or 12 cores on them so different um, sort of it's 12 or 8 CPUs on top of each other or 4 but the video cards today have got 2,500 on them so the, the high end one if you've got, got more than that so uh, the power of video cards is absolutely enormous they really are uh, effectively the power of some of the old supercomputers now they do medical um calculations on them and uh you can you can stack them uh, to a huge degree so so the, the the power uh that is um behind our video games is enormous um and and is set to increase uh, um massively still because the the industry of video games is is enormous is taking i think it's taken over hollywood now uh, in terms of investment and profit as well so it's it's not disappearing anytime soon mm -hmm. uh, so so the combination of this and also what happens in our mobile phones these accelerometers which uh, enable you to move your uh, phone around and effectively the know the phone knows where it is it knows uh, so it's what you use when you do um, Google Maps and you use it as a GPS and it knows which way you're facing um, so so those two things you put them together and you create you create these uh, this headset that you can put on your head and it knows where you're looking and it's got enough power to feed um, uh, two images, two, two different images to both your eyes, and you've got a virtual reality headset which enables you to um, effectively step into the world of virtual reality. Uh, it gives you the illusion of, of um, effectively, you're still looking at two screens. You're, well, you're still looking at a screen, but you're looking at two of them, for uh, one for each eye, and it gives you stereo vision, which enables you to uh, look uh, and see in 3D. So um, we know 3D from going to see Star Wars in 3D, but in Star Wars, we still, um, we see two different images per each eye, um, but we're looking at it from, from the outside. We're still looking at a screen. When we put the headset on, um, we're able to step inside. Uh, and, and this is, uh, this is the huge, huge, huge difference for me and for anybody who's, <laughs> who's who fell into the virtual reality soup. Uh, 
um, that um, you 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 suddenly you're in you're in that virtual world. You're you're not looking at it from the outside. You're in it, um, and it's it's quite an experience. Um, I know you've you've tried it, Mark. Well, I know. Yes. So uh, <laughs> Fabrice invited me to his studio one day, and we and I got to put on the helmet. Was it the Oculus Rift? Yes. And you played a very far out sequence that <laughs> I experienced, and it, it was really quite uncanny because. The thing for me was, you know, moving my head and just getting physical sensations in my body in response to things that weren't there. Yeah. I was kind of prepared for looking around and seeing stuff, but not for actually my body being fooled by that. Yes. So it's it's really, it's a kinesthetic experience as much as it's a visual one. It really, you know, you're, you're actually in the, you feel like you're, you're really st- going through the looking glass yourself. Yes, exactly. So this is an, this is, this is it. This is a, a sort of a little bit of a of an unexpected byproduct where it's very difficult to explain. You really have to experience it. Um, but when you're looking at 3D on a screen, you're looking at a video game and you're engaging with it. But still, it's like reading a, a newspaper. When you're when you're in it, um, you, you're uh, effectively what happens is is your your consciousness. Um, that your presence, your you, is not here anymore. It's there, and so your your body leaves this world. No, your body stays in this world, but your your attention goes into the other world. So it sounds a little bit metaphysical, but. I can't put it any other way. That's <laughs> that's what it is. It's really becoming incredibly real. <laughs> and so so what's um what I've been doing with with this is I've been very fortunate to be um contacted with a company called Epic Games which uh create video games and they're one of the uh, biggest uh, they also um uh, release a software which is free uh, to create video games. So it's it's one of those sort of big five companies out there that um, that have released their their um, their engine. They call, that's what it's called in the in the game world. So and they've asked me to help them um, to, to create um, content and and education to 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 teach people how to use. Um, this this uh, the software to to create virtual worlds effectively because what what this is um, is is effectively um, Minecraft for grown-ups. <laughs> this Unreal Engine, the and and I've I've been using it extensively, but it's um, it's quite incredible the level of realism that you can get to now with where. Uh, the, the, you can create absolutely beautiful, beautiful stuff. What do you think some of the possibilities and implications are? I mean, are we, are we just talking about really, really good movies and computer games, or do you think it will be more far-reaching than that? Well, so that's... You, um, one thing I didn't mention when uh, talking about the 3D as a design tool um, is is that when I worked over here, the... Um, 
you know, obviously the, 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 the architecture and the real estate industry is quite an old conservative industry. And um, there's a lot of money involved. And um, I, I have to say, I've been a little bit disappointed with the architecture industry on this sort of the uptake that the, there's a few, okay, let me say it. There's a lot of ego involved in the architecture industry and it gets in the way. So uh, clients want their ego stroked, architects want their ego stroked and <laughs> everybody wants to do a great thing that's going to benefit them. So they're going to make, make them money and you can't blame anybody for that, but it's a very short term vision. Some of the people that I've actually been very impressed with are um, companies like Google. They were really interested in seeing uh, what you can do with 3D. You know, when I, I was very fortunate to work with them for a while with the Google Labs team and, 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 well, I guess it's, there's some degree of marketing, but it, they really wanted to see what you could do, you know, um, to push to push things. So when this is the way I see it, is that we've got a lot of problems in this world and we're kind of running out of ideas. We, we, it's quite difficult to think of new things. And what I believe is that we here we have a system and it works like this. We When we create... Our, our dreams without any um, constraints. We, we um, you know, like kids do in Minecraft, or mm -hmm. when we do in in um, well, as when as we could do, we we come up with com completely far out things. But what happens is that it gives us a new um, a new angle of vision. Let's say about things. And so if we were to build um, communities like Facebook does, or if we were to um, sort out some of problems like, I don't know, like shopping and things like that, or organization of our uh, of our local communities or things like that in form in 3D, effectively in virtual reality, the way that I see it is that we might come with, we might come up with new ideas that, that have a shape, that have a form. And then these new ideas might just actually give us ideas about how to inform this real world. I, just a little parenthesis here about my job is called visualization. I'm a 3D visualizer. I've been a 3D visualizer for a long time without really knowing what it means and uh, without even very much liking the term until uh, and late, until I worked with you, Mark, when <laughs> I understood what visualization actually means. And when you look it up, it's 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 an incredibly powerful thing. It's not necessarily all for uh, for entertainment and for sort of distracting you and 
creating, you know, and making money for Facebook and Google and things like that. Um, I think there's there's a real potential to uh, to visualize things. Um, say say a hospital. It's a very very complex thing to build, and we can. Uh, it's they're usually done by. Uh, I believe relatively small teams compared to the number of people who are going to actually be using that. Some of these things are sort of four, five hundred million pounds, and they take years, and mm-hmm. uh, they're very large buildings. Um, for example, if we were able to use virtual reality for that, not only to help the team design, uh, help the team communicate between them, between the different consultants and the different um, actors of the design team, but also to engage the public with it, to engage, for example, patients who are currently using hospitals. Okay, so how might this, you mean you would create a virtual hospital that the designers and then the public could walk around in an experience before you spend your four or five hundred million pounds? Well, I would engage people in the entire process from the very beginning yeah. uh, from concepts, for example. So we can, we've got the possibility to create spaces very quickly at the beginning and to, and to test them, to walk around them. Um, I always say, why let's, let's involve the cleaning lady, you know, or the cleaning team because they yeah. have all the keys. And they <laughs> they use the deepest darkest cupboards, and yeah. you know, but but do they ever have a say in 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 the way the buildings you know sort of large community buildings are, are built? I don't think so. That the, the no. process of um, of uh, um, Consultation, it's it's very archaic today. It's it's really you know it's sort of you print out boards and you have a meeting and people come around and and um, it's it's I, I I think massive this massive improvement could be done um, not only for buildings but on on an urban scale on on uh, on well any. <laughs> On a national scale, on a on a small uh, local scale of of the way things could be, because people will react much better to um, to something that they can see, they can experience, uh, and they mm. can see what it's like, and they go, "No, I didn't like that." Uh, oh, well, why didn't you like that? When they see a nice three D render that's been photoshopped and you know, um, like exactly the same way a magazine cover would be done or or a, or a poster for a movie, I think people are getting a little bit disillusioned now saying, yeah, well, that looks nice, but it's not really going to look like that, is it? And they're right. <laughs> so what, what would VR give them that that slick visualization doesn't give them? It <clears throat> what, what VR effectively does, because... You, you put the helmet on and um, there's no there's no learning involved you'd put it on you grab the controllers and you and you're like yeah I can do this I know I know how to do this there's it's easier to use than an iPhone you know there's there's no there's no abstraction whatsoever there's no skill involved in learning VR you just put it on and you're in 
So we all we could all be Minecraft builders of the future. Well, to tell you the truth, I think we're a bit. It, this is not so much about us, actually. Yeah. Because we could all be Minecraft builders, but the truth is that our kids are already all Minecraft builders. So yeah. it really yeah. is about them. And and yeah. I think that whether we like it or not, they are going to do it because they already are. And, um, you know, by the time they are old enough to make decisions, we're going to be <laughs> in our armchairs by the fire with our blanket over our knees. And they're, and they're just going to, they're going to expect all this stuff to, um, to be working. And I think it's kind of, um, it's, it's our role now to put it into place for them to use. That's the way I see it for when I see them. <laughs> like, well, well, I couldn't agree more. I just couldn't believe it when I went down. And I've got, you know, two seven-year-olds and the, the architecture that they'd been building down in the living room when I thought they were just watching TV was just phenomenal. Mm, yeah. So, so Fabrice, at this point in the interviews, I invite my guest to set a creative challenge to anybody who's listening to this. And you've got a really interesting one that follows on from what can we create in the future? So maybe you'd like to tell us about it. If you were to have a space that you would deliver your services or sell your products or, 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 or welcome your clients, have, have meetings with your clients, for example, if um, that's what you do, or, or you would present your, your products or you would uh, deliver information um, uh, or sell information, um, and, and, and that experience would be in a space that is not contrived by any physical, um, rules. This, this doesn't have to be gravity. There's, there's got to be light, but there doesn't have to be any way in because you can just you can just arrive and you're already in. Um, yeah. It doesn't this it doesn't have to be uh, any restrictions on 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 distances. You can go somewhere. <laughs> you know, you could you could you could be in the tropics, and the next second you can be in the North Pole. It would take no yeah. time to travel from one place to another. So all all these rules have suddenly gone, and you're you're free to imagine anything, but it still has to work. It still has to um, fulfill um, a very, a very precise, a very real need. Um, and, um, and I would love to know what people, um, what people, what people's people think, what, what their ideas, um, what their ideas are, what your idea are. <laughs> Okay, so here's the challenge then. Imagine that your website could be replaced by a virtual reality environment, just as Fabrice described. And this VR environment does practically no limit limitations, apart from apparently you have to have light, otherwise you can't see anything. Mm. So you could have a woodland glade, it could be somewhere in outer space, it could be underwater, it could be something from ancient history, 
it could be something the like of which the world has never seen before. And I think, Fabrice, you're saying, but the website also needs to fulfill its current functions. So if you're a, I don't know, if you're a bookshop, if you're an author, you're selling books, include a way to get books. If you're uh, providing a service, make this an extension of your service. So something that's still serving the visitors, but in a very creative, very unusual environment that people experience via virtual reality. Mm. And usual rules, I will explain exactly how how the creative challenge works just after this recording. So keep listening if you'd like to take part. And Fabrice, you very kindly have a, a really remarkable set of prizes for the lucky three winners this week. Can you tell us what you've got? Oh, yes. Um, well, I've um, I've recently discovered um, uh, screen printing. So I've talked a little bit about that. Uh, so I would love to give out um, three prints to the lucky winners um so they'll be they'll be numbered and signed uh, and proper on proper archival paper and the real thing so um yeah there you go they'll be fantastic uh, thank you fabrice that's that's wonderful and um i'm going to put obviously all the links in the show notes but for people listening to this fabrice could you tell us where to find us where to find you on the internet as it's currently manifested um, yes, so there's my website, fabriceboueli.com. So that's a long, long name. So there'll be the, the link underneath. There's my YouTube channel, which is also uh, Fabrice Boueli. Uh, and it's where Bo- Boueli is B-O-U single R, R, is it? Double R-E. Yeah, Right. where I teach this software, Unreal Engine. And so you can... That's that's quite active at the moment, and there's uh, there's my the visualization website called 3dw.co.uk, which is quite old now. But um, yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the best ways to uh, to see my work. Okay, great, and it's really worth exploring Fabrice's sites. He's got original drawings and paintings. He's got mind-boggling videos of some of the visualizations he's created. If you're interested in learning how to do this stuff for yourself, then do check out Fabrice's YouTube channel, uh, where you know he shows people how the the effects are are being created. So, Fabrice, thank you so much. We've covered thousands of years, and <laughs> well, thank you. Even even further pleasure. creatively, I feel like we've gone. So uh, that was great. Thank you so much. In just one moment, I'll tell you how you can take part in this week's creative challenge. But before that, I'd like to ask you to do one small thing that will make a really big difference to the show. And that's to pop along to iTunes and press the little purple subscribe button. And if you're really feeling full of enthusiasm for the 21st century creative, maybe you could leave a brief review explaining why you like the show. The reason for this is that it wakes up the little gremlins inside the iTunes store. Because there's so many shows, the gremlins can't be expected to figure out which ones are good and which ones will appeal to this person or that person. Plus, they're gremlins. They don't have your good taste and discernment. So they're relying on you to press the subscribe button, to leave a review or a rating, because that lets them know that this kind of show is the kind of show that appeals to this kind of person. 
In other words, other people of creativity, good taste, and discernment. And the Gremlins will put the show in front of them, and more people will discover it, they will benefit, and critically, the Gremlins can knock off work early. So please, consider the Gremlins. Press the magic subscribe button. Leave them a review. So, Fabrice has set you a mind-boggling creative challenge to tackle this week, and he's giving away some really special prizes, those original art prints of his beautiful drawings. If you want to take part and have a chance of winning the prints, here's how the challenge works. The challenge itself is to imagine that your website could be replaced by a fully immersive 3D virtual reality environment. And this virtual reality environment has practically no limitations, apart from you have to have light. Otherwise, people are wondering, well, I guess you could have people wandering around in the dark if you really want. So, for instance, you could invite your visitors into a woodland glade. Or it could be somewhere in outer space. It could be underwater. It could be something from ancient history. Or it could be something else, the like of which the world has never yet seen. And remember, there's one other constraint Fabrice has given us. The website also needs to fulfill its current function. So if you're a bookshop or if you're an author and you're selling books, you need to include a way for people to buy books. If you're providing a service, make this environment somehow an extension of your service. If you're a musician, give them a way to experience and buy your music. So something that's still serving your visitors, but in a very creative, very immersive, very unusual environment that people can experience via virtual reality. Okay, once you have your idea of your website of the future, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash three and leave a comment describing the website as vividly as you can. You have until midnight United States Pacific time this Friday, 16th of June, 2017, to leave your comment. Obviously, if you're listening after that date, the challenge has now closed. But you can still take part in creative challenges for future episodes of the show. And of course, you can still imagine your website for yourself. Once the challenge has finished, I will pick three winners at random from the comments who will receive... Fabrice's prize of three beautiful limited edition prints of his drawings. As always, I want to stress I will pick the winners at random. I won't be judging the comments because the challenge is not a competition. Over the weekend, I will send a bonus recording with my feedback on your comments and what we can all learn from the challenge. I'll also be sharing some reflections and advice from my own experience and perspective as a coach. The next part is important. The feedback recording will not be released on the regular iTunes podcast feed. It will only be available via the 21st Century Creative email list. So to join the list, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash bonus and enter your email address in the box. Not only will you get the feedback recordings for every creative challenge, you'll also get the 21st Century Creative Foundation course. 
a free in-depth course to help you succeed as a creative professional. Okay, that's it for the challenge. You'll also find these instructions in the show notes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm/3. Have fun with the challenge. I'm really looking forward to reading about your websites. And stay tuned for another episode of the 21st Century Creative next Monday. <laughs>